Hi, my name is Jeff Redding. I'm a preaching elder here at Walton Community Church in Monroe, Georgia. Before we begin the sermon, our church would like to invite you to join us as we gather every Sunday morning for worship at 10 a.m. You can learn more about our church on our website at waltoncommunitychurch.org. Thanks for listening. All right, thank you, George. Howdy, WCC. It's good to see you this morning. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, as George said, we are going to be looking at Hebrews today. And uh, as you turn, I do want to give credit where credit is due. And for this sermon, I was helped tremendously by a couple of pastors, Ken Jones and uh, Sean Harris. All right, so we are continuing our sermon series through the book of Hebrews. And I say this, I try to say this almost every week. The theme of Hebrews is that real faith, saving faith in Jesus is a persevering faith. So we're encouraged to hold fast to Christ no matter what. And the author keeps stressing that genuine faith in Christ is a faith that lasts all the way to the end of a person's life. So the author to the Hebrews is writing to a group of Jewish Christians. And so they put their faith in Jesus, but now they're being tempted to go back to Judaism. They're being tempted to turn away from Christ. And the writer is saying, you better not do that. You better not turn away from Jesus because if you do, you're turning away from God. You're turning away from the Messiah. So because Jesus is God, he's the only way to be saved. If you turn away from him, you won't enter heaven. And what we'll see today is you will not enter into God's eternal heavenly rest. And in Hebrews 3 and 4, the author is using an Old Testament historical account as a picture of what it looks like to turn back to turn away from following God. And the historical account that he uses as a warning about turning back is the account of the people in Israel as they were just about to enter into the land of Canaan. So if you're a note taker, I'm going to help you out this morning. I normally don't do this, but I've got three big ideas that, that I want to talk about this morning. And these are, I'll go over them again, but the three big ideas are this. One, Canaan is an earthly picture of God's heavenly rest. Canaan is an earthly picture of God's heavenly rest. Two, you enter God's eternal rest by believing his promises. You enter into God's eternal rest by believing his promises. And then big idea three that we'll talk about at the end is the more you're serving Christ, the more you long for God's eternal rest. The more you're serving Christ, the more you long for God's eternal rest. That's what we're going to look at this morning. Before we read the passage in Hebrews, though, I want to give you some background about what the author is saying in Hebrews 3 and 4. I think this is, this is going to help as we read through the passage. So I want to begin by going all the way to when God first spoke to Moses out of the burning bush. If you've ever read Exodus, you remember that account. At that time, the people of Israel were enslaved in Egypt. And Moses and his family are in the desert, they're in Midian, and Moses at the time is tending his father-in-law Jethro's sheep, and he's out in the wilderness area. And God speaks to Moses out of the burning bush. And one of the things that God says to Moses, this is Exodus 3.8, God says this, he says, I have come down to deliver my people out of the hand of the Egyptians, and God says this, to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites. So God promises from the get-go that he's going to take the people out of Egypt and bring them into the land of Canaan. 
While he's talking to Moses, God again says, this is Exodus 3, 16 and 17, God said, go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has appeared to me saying, I've observed what you and what I observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And God says this again, he says, I promise, I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, a land flowing with milk and honey. So God keeps saying, and he keeps saying this over and over again. He promises. He says, I promise I'm going to bring you, bring the people into the land of Canaan. I promise. Then at the end of Exodus 4, Moses meets with his brother Aaron. He meets with all the elders of Israel. And he tells them everything that God has said. And it said, and all the people believed at the end of Exodus 4. Okay? So again, God keeps saying, I promise that I'm going to bring you into the land of Canaan. And a land flowing with milk and honey, a land, plenty of food. That's what f- milk and honey, it sounds strange to us. But in those days, to get food was a huge deal. It was always a stress. So a land flowing with milk and honey was a land with plenty of food and just a beautiful place, okay? So again, God brings, he says he's going to bring them into the promised land, and it's the promised land because God promised to bring them into that land. All right, then we fast forward, and God has taken the people out of Egypt out of slavery, he's done these incredible miracles. He's brought, brought the plagues down on the Egyptians. He, he's brought the people of Israel through the Red Sea. He's drowned the Egyptian army. All this, God has defeated Egypt, the most powerful nation on earth at the time. God has rescued his people. Then God gives him his law. You can read about this in Exodus 20. God gives the Ten Commandments. And we fast forward again just a little bit. And now this is where I want us to, to try to use your imagination here. The people of Israel are in the wilderness of Paran, just on the east side of the Jordan River. They're camped out, looking across the Jordan River, looking into the land of Canaan that God has promised them. All right, try to get this in your mind. Now, this is important. It's been just to give the people since they left Egypt. God, in this year, God has used this time to to give the people his law, to teach them how to live, how to worship him, how, how to be his people. So they've been out of Egypt one year, and now they're about to go into Canaan. One year. They're ready. Okay, so, so picture it. You see tents all around you, as far as the eye can see. You're looking west into the land of Canaan. God has promised to give you that land. Okay, he's promised. So right then, they're about to go in, seems like. And in Numbers chapters 13 and 14, God says to Moses, he says, it says, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which again, he says, which I am giving to the people of Israel. So he says, Moses, send some spies into the land to spy out the land. So God, so Moses does it. He sends these spies out. So again, God keeps promising he's going to give them the land. So Moses obeys. He sends the 10 spies out. Two of the spies are Joshua and Caleb. You may know them. Great men of faith. So there were 10 10 spies, two of them were Joshua and Caleb. When these 12 spies go out, when they they look at the land, they see the land is beautiful. They see the land is filled with food, lots of fruit, fruit, beautiful pasture land. They come back, they've got grapes and figs and pomegranates. They're, They're showing the people and they say, they come back and they say, yes, the land is beautiful. It's filled with food. It's flowing with milk and honey. But then 10 of the spies... So try to picture yourself. Ten of the spies also say, but we shouldn't go in there because the people there are very strong. They're going to whoop us if we go in there. We're going to get slaughtered if we go in there. 
Joshua and Caleb are saying, no, we need to go in. God said he's going to give us the land. But the people are scared. They're listening to the 10 spies. So again, put yourself in that place. What are you going to do? You're hearing the report from the spies. You're looking into the promised land. What are you going to do? You're right on the edge of Canaan. It's only been a year and you're ready to go in. What are you going to do? You know God has promised to give you this land. But again, these 10 spies are saying, we shouldn't go in. These people are going to slaughter us, right? They may have been saying, you know, God didn't say we're going to go in there and, and be fine. He didn't promise that everyone is going to be safe. He didn't promise. So think about how you would hear this. How are you going to respond? What are you going to do? God has promised to take you into the land of Canaan. Are, the question is, are you going to believe his promises and go in? Or are you going to turn back and not believe what God has promised? I re, I really, to the extent you can, I want you to feel the weight of this. Okay? What are you going to do? Well, here's what the people of Israel did. They didn't go in. With a few exceptions, like Joshua and Caleb, with a few exceptions, the people did not believe and they didn't go in. They turned away from the land God had promised to give them. They believed the scary reports from the spies and they turned away from the promised land. They didn't obey God. They didn't believe God's promises. And this is Numbers 13, 1 to 4. It says this, Then all the congregation raised their voices and cried out, and the people wept that night. And all the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron and the entire congregation. And they said this, if only we had died, died in the land of Egypt, or even if we had died in this wilderness. So why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will be, become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, let's appoint a leader and return to Egypt. It's a tragic day. The people don't believe God. They say, did you hear that? They say it would, have been, it would be better for us to die in the wilderness, to die in this desert. And God gets angry with them because they refuse to believe him. And God basically says, okay, you say it'd be better to die in the wilderness? You got it. That's what's going to happen. And that's what happened to them. With the exception of Joshua and Caleb, and God swears, he swears, this entire generation won't go into that land. God's going to be angry with this people, and it goes on for 40 years. They had only been traveling one year. They were about to ready to go in. God is angry. They didn't believe. And for 40 years then, they wander around in the desert before going in. That entire generation died. They said, it'd be better for us to die in the wilderness. And God said, you got it. None of you are going in. You, you're, because you won't believe my word, all right? Then, we, the, now, under, under Joshua, 40 years later, they do go into the promised land. And 400 years later, about 400 years later, David is writing about this event in Psalm 95. And he puts it this way. He says, God, God says, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Okay, so that is the setting of Hebrews 3 and 4. And the author, now here's the application at the time of the Hebrews. So this is around 60 AD, when, when 50, 60, something like that, when the author of Hebrews is writing to this Jewish Christian church. He's warning these Jewish Christians. He's warning them, you better not be like the people of Israel. You better not turn your back on God's promises. You better not turn your back on God's eternal 
rest. You better believe God's promises and hold fast to Jesus because if you don't, you're going to be like the people of Israel. If you turn away in unbelief, you won't enter into God's eternal rest. Okay, so that's the passage. Now let's read the passage. Actually, let's, let's start in Hebrews 3.16. And I think with that background now, reading this is going to make more sense. At least I hope it does. All right, Hebrews 3, let's start in verse 16. It says this, For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was God provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? They died in the wilderness. Verse 18, and to whom did God swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? Verse 19, so we see that they were unable to enter because of what? Unbelief. Was it because of some problem with God? Was it because God is not faithful to his promises? Was it because God is too weak to defeat the Canaanites and all these people? No, they were not able to enter because of unbelief. They did not enter the land of Canaan because of their unbelief. Over and over again, God promised them that they were going to enter that land, but they didn't believe him. They had unbelieving hearts. They had hard hearts. They did not listen to the word of God. They didn't believe God. Again, this is a picture that the people of Israel are about to enter into the land of Canaan, and it's a picture of us about to enter into our heavenly rest, eternal rest with God. So that's the picture. As I said, big idea number one, Canaan is an earthly picture of God's heavenly rest. And big idea number two is you enter God's eternal rest by believing his promises. And that's what the writer to the Hebrews is going to say in chapter four. And he's applying it to us. It's like us standing at the edge of heaven, heavenly rest, eternal rest. Are we going to believe God's promises? Are we going to put our faith in Jesus Christ and live for him? Are we going to live by faith and believe God's promises and enter God's heavenly eternal rest? Or are we going to be like the people of Israel? Okay, so that's what he's applying now. Let's look at Hebrews 4, 1 to 2. Hebrews 4, 1 to 2 says this. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Verse 2, for good news, gospel, that's what that means. Good news came to us just as it came to them. But the message they heard, the people of Israel, The message they heard didn't benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. In other words, God's promise did not benefit those unbelieving Jews because they were not united with those who listened with faith. Joshua and Caleb listened with faith. They believed, but the unbelieving Jews were not united with Joshua and Caleb in believing God's promises. So the the writer is saying the promise of entering God's eternal rest is still available to us. God's promise still stands. And again, the question is, are we going to believe his promises? The people of Israel did not believe. They did not believe the good news. That's what it says there. The good news for them was God's promise. God kept saying, I'm giving you this land flowing with milk and honey, right? I'm giving you this land. That's good news. That's gospel. 
In the same way for us, God says, I promise you, I'm giving you the land of heaven, eternal rest, resurrection life to come, heavenly rest. If you put your faith in Jesus, if you trust that he died in your place, if you believe that promise and live by faith, then you're going to have heavenly eternal rest. Now, let me make some comments about the word rest here in this passage. I think primarily he's talking about future rest in heaven. I think the writer of the Hebrews is primarily talking about future rest in heaven. So I think he's saying in the future we're, we will enter God's eternal heavenly rest. I think it's primarily about heaven, rest is. Now, this is important too. There is a rest available. There's rest available for us in Jesus Christ right now. And that's awesome. Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight and 29, come to me. You know this famous passage, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, Jesus says, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So there is rest available to God's people right now. Jesus gives us this rest by resting in his sovereignty, by resting in the fact that he's in control. By resting in his goodness, in his love, in his concern for us, okay? His concern for us. He, he makes that rest available to us now. But here in Hebrews, as I said, I think the writer is primarily talking about future heavenly rest, eternal rest. Eternal rest with God ultimately in the resurrection life to come. All right, let's look at Hebrews 4 verses 3 and 5. He says this, for we who have believed enter that rest. Again, I think he's talking about the future. I think he's saying we will enter that rest. As he has said, as God said, as I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. Although God's works were finished from the foundation of the world. For God has somewhere spoken of the seventh day. This is his way of talking about Genesis. God has uh, somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. Verse 5, and again in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. When it talks about God resting from his works on the seventh day, I'm not going to get bogged down in, in it too much, but essentially it's this. God was working when he created the world, when he created the universe. He did that in six days. And then on the seventh day, he rested. And what you notice if you read the passage in Genesis, if you read the creation account in Genesis, Every time after a day, it says there was evening and morning the first day. There was evening and morning second day, third, fourth, fifth, sixth. Keep saying there was evening and morning. But when it gets to the seventh day, it doesn't say that. It gets to the seventh day, and it just says God rested. God rested on the seventh day. So what he's saying is in one through six, days one through six, God completed this, evening and morning. But on the seventh day, it just says God rested. So there's a sense in which God's rest, his Sabbath, is continuing on now. It's like this God's rest just continues on, okay? And what it means is God, there's a sense in which God is still working right now. Jesus says, my father is always working. So God is always moving and working. But when it says that he rested, it means that he's not, he's not creating the universe anymore, okay? So he's resting from creating the universe. He's resting from creation. Also, when it talks about Entering into God's rest, I think this, is, this will help you, I hope. It's almost like this idea of shalom. You ever heard that word shalom, peace in the Old Testament? 
This idea of rest is, is close to that. It, shalom, peace, rest, it's this idea that everything is the way it should be. You're entering into the fullness of God's grace. Everything is right. It's peace, shalom, rest, all very similar ideas. When we think of rest, at least when I do, I think about taking a nap, right? I think about getting on the couch and just getting zonked out. That's rest. That's not what we're talking about here. Rest doesn't mean being in a coma, okay? The the idea of entering God's rest means entering into perfect fellowship with God. You know, within the Trinity, within the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there is this perfect fellowship. In that sense, there is this perfect harmony. There's this perfect rest. There's this intimacy and love within the Godhead. It's, it's shalom. It's rest. And in the resurrection life to come, we will get to enter into God's rest. And we get a little bit, bit of that now in this world, but we'll get the full rest, God's eternal rest in the life to come. So I think that's what it's primarily talking about when it says entering into God's rest. Again, peace, shalom, intimate, loving fellowship with God and other people in the life to come. True rest, eternal rest. All right, Hebrews 4, look at verses 6 to 10. It says, since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news, Israel, failed to enter Remember, they failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, the writer's talking about Israel. He says these people didn't enter because of a lack of obedience, a lack of faith. Verse 7, again, he appoints, God appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long after, this is hundreds of years after, and the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. I've stressed this before, the writer keeps on talking about today. And what he's showing is there's an urgency It's right now. That's when to believe. Right now. Don't put it off. There's an urgency to his message today. Listen to God right now, today. That's what he's saying. Don't harden your hearts. All right, verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, remember Joshua, after 40 years, eventually led the people in. If Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Okay, so again, the people of Israel finally got into the promised land after 40 years and and they went into the land of Canaan. That's a picture of God's eternal rest, but that wasn't the final rest. That wasn't the end game. The land of Canaan was not the ultimate goal. It wasn't ultimate rest. There remains, he says, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. There remains this Sabbath rest, this ultimate rest for God's people. So in the resurrection life to come, we will rest from our works. We'll rest from fighting against sin. We'll rest from heartbreak and heartache and sadness that we deal with now in this sin-filled world, in this fallen world. We'll rest from that. We'll rest from broken relationships. We'll rest from fighting the sin that's in our own heart. We'll rest from all that. This is uh, Revelation 14, 13. You get this same idea. Revelation 14, 13 says this. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this. Listen to what he says. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the spirit, that they may rest from their labors. That's what that means. And here in Hebrews 4, verse 9, the writer says this interesting phrase. He says, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. 
That term Sabbath rest is the only time you'll find this Greek word in the New Testament. And the writer to the Hebrews may have invented this word. It's, it's a word something like sabbatismos or something. I'm not a Greek dude, but it's something like sabbatismos. It had the word Sabbath in there. Sabbath rest. It's a great word. And what he's saying is the Sabbath rest that we enjoy now in this life, in the church, the Sabbath rest that we enjoy on Sunday, this is a picture. This is a foretaste of the ultimate Sabbath rest that we'll enjoy in the life to come. So the early church, the early church gathered together. You can read about this in, in the book of Acts. The early church gathered together and they worshiped the Lord, not on Saturday, the seventh day, but on Sunday, the first day, first day of the week. This Sunday was the day that Jesus was raised from the dead. So the early church started gathering together and fellowshipping together and worshiping God together on Sunday, the first day of the week. They called it the Lord's Day. I believe the church should do the same thing in our day. So on Sunday, we have this Sabbath rest. We rest from our works. We enjoy resting in Christ. As I said, it's not just taking a nap. It involves worshiping God. It involves praising him. It's gathering with God's people. It's enjoying being around brothers and sisters in Christ. We got small group today, as George said. This is a picture of Sabbath rest because a wonderful part of Sabbath rest is when you get to share a meal with brothers and sisters in Christ, all right? Now, sometimes, I'll say this, sometimes the Sabbath gets a bad reputation because here's what happened. People want to turn it into a list of rules. They want to turn it into a list of do's and don'ts. When it comes to the Sabbath, there's a tendency to want to make up a bunch of detailed rules like the Pharisees. We want to start hammering out thousands of rules. I'm not a big fan of making up a bunch of rules that aren't in the Bible, okay? I'm just not a fan of that. But, and this is huge, I am absolutely convinced that we need to enter into God's Sabbath rest now on a weekly basis, on Sunday. We need a foretaste of God's Sabbath rest while we're on this earth, and we need to do that every Sunday. And entering into God's Sabbath rest involves worshiping together, enjoying God. We fix our hearts and our minds on him. We partake of the Lord's Supper. We sing praises to God. We fellowship with one another. We enjoy being around church family. All of this is a part of Sabbath rest, and we, ha- we get it now. It's going to happen in full in the life to come, God's eternal rest. But we need to partake of the Sabbath rest right now to give us a little taste of God's eternal rest to prepare us for heaven. All right, Hebrews 4.11. Hebrews 4.11, he says, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Again, he's talking about the people of Israel. He's saying don't fall in the wilderness like the people of Israel did. They didn't enter into God's rest. So we need to strive to enter into God's rest. And we do that by believing God's promises. Again, big idea number one, Canaan is an earthly picture of God's heavenly rest. And big idea number two is you enter God's eternal rest by believing his promises. We want to have soft hearts where we believe what God has said. We believe God's promises. That's that's fighting the good fight of faith. That's what it means to to strive to enter God's rest. Then we get to verses 12 and 13. These are two very famous verses. 12 and 13, a famous word passage is about the word of God. And when you first read it, at least when I do, when you first read it, you may think to yourself, what in the world does this have to do with the passage? It seems like this big break. You're talking about God's rest 
and all this. And then he starts talking about the word of God, living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. And it seems like when you read it, it's like, what does this have to do with the passage? Well, remember, the whole point of Hebrews 3 and 4 is about believing God's word. It's about hearing God speak and having a soft heart. And when we hear the voice of God, we believe. Back in in Hebrews 3, 7, he says, as the Holy Spirit says, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, so it's about God's word, his voice, the Holy Spirit speaking to us. I mentioned this recently, that when we open up the Bible, we should realize that the Holy Spirit is speaking to us in that moment. Okay, so all of this is about God speaking, about his word. Again, Israel didn't go into the promised land because they didn't believe God's word. So this passage really is about God's word and our need to believe him. Also, the writer of the Hebrews, is sa- he said this many times. He said, I don't know your hearts. He said, he said, I can't look into your hearts. I don't know your hearts. He's talking to people who are gathered in the church, but he's saying, I can't see if you have living faith in Jesus Christ. He says, I can't see deep down into your soul. But you know what? God can. God can see down deep in your soul. He can see whether you're listening to his voice, whether you're believing his word. Because God's word goes all the way down in the deepest recesses of your heart. And God can see it. That's what he says in verses 12 and 13. Let's look at it together. Hebrews 4, 12 and 13, he says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from God's sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. God can see if a heart is dead or alive to him. He knows our hearts and nothing is hidden from his sight. He sees everything. He sees if you're believing his word. I can't know your heart. You can't know my heart, but God knows. That's what this is saying. All right. So that's the passage. As I said, I've told you about the three big ideas. Canaan is an earthly picture of God's rest. You enter into this rest by believing his promises. We've talked a lot about these. As I said, this, the Israel as is this picture, Right. Israel is a picture that whether they believed would would determine whether they're going into that rest. In the same way, we enter into God's eternal rest. How? By believing God, by believing his promises. They had good news preached to them. I'm giving you this land, God said. They had good news. They didn't believe it. We have good news. We have gospel. He promises that we will enter into heavenly rest, eternal rest, if we believe God's word. If we believe the good news that Jesus is the Messiah, that he died in our place. If we believe it, trusting in him, then we will enter into God's eternal rest. We enter God's eternal rest by believing his promises. Then big idea number three, finally, is this one. The more you're serving Christ, the more you long for God's eternal rest. The more you're serving Christ, the more you long for God's eternal rest. I I haven't really touched on this one, but it's so true. The more you're serving Jesus Christ, the more you're striving to enter God's rest, the more you long for that eternal rest. Listen, if you're living for the things of this world, 
If your plans are all about getting comfort and pleasure in this world, if that's what's on your mind all the time, then honestly, heaven ain't that great. It just ain't that big a deal. Because you got all your thoughts on this world and no thoughts on heaven. If you're serving your own kingdom and not God's, you really don't long for God's eternal rest. But if you're serving the kingdom of Christ and you're wanting to see people come to faith in Jesus, you're wanting to see the gospel go forth, if you're wanting the church to be healthy, to be faithful and obedient to the Lord, if you're wanting people to grow in their love for God and grow in holiness, if you want young people to be happy in the Lord, if you want old people to be happy in the Lord, if you want folks to trust in Christ and you're serving then you long for God's eternal rest. The more you serve the Lord, the more you long for his eternal rest. Also, when you see the horrible effects of sin and you you see sin deceiving people, like I talked about last week, if you're doing some secret sin and you, you think you're deceiving people around you, really what's happening, sin is deceiving you. You're the one being deceived. And when you see this happening, when you see sin ruining people's lives and the evil one ruining people's lives. You've seen this. You know people whose lives are ruined, destroyed. They're sad. They're broken over their sin. When you see this, when you see the horrible effects of this, when that's happening and you're serving, you really long for Christ's eternal rest. The ladies in our church are studying Philippians. What does Paul say in Philippians 1.21? For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's right. To, God, to die is gain. For me to live is Christ. Living for Christ. Serving him. That's awesome. Believing his word. Serving the Lord in faith. That's wonderful. But to die is gain. Why? Why is to die gain? Paul says it two verses later in Philippians 1.23. He says, my desire is to depart And be with Christ, for that is far better. This is way better. Paul shows us the more you're serving the Lord, the more you're engaged in the fight of faith, the more you see lives ruined by sin and evil and the fall, the more you see all that, the more you long for God's eternal rest. Because being with Jesus is far better. It is so much better. I'm longing for God's eternal rest rest. I can't wait. I'm ready. I'm like, come Lord Jesus, come right now. Let's go. I'm ready for everything to be right. For all heartbreak and and pain and brokenness to be gone. No more tears to be just eternal joy with Jesus Christ. I'm ready. I'm ready. But you know what? My heart is still beating. Yep. I still got a pulse, right? You know what that means? It means I have work to do here. That means I still have work to do, to serve the Lord. I'm longing for God's eternal rest in the resurrection life to come. But again, I'm longing because the more you serve Christ, the more you long for God's eternal rest. All right, I'm gonna close with this. This this passage is all about believing God. Believing God, not believing in God, right? Not believing that God exists. Even the demons believe in God, right? This is about believing God, believing what he says, believing his promises. If you're not believing God's promises, then this passage is for you because you're standing in the wilderness, looking across the Jordan River into the land of promise. You're right there. You're right on the outskirts of God's eternal rest. How are you going to respond? 
Maybe you think to yourself, I realize I'm not believing God's word. I'm not really believing the gospel, the good news about Jesus. I'm not truly believing. I don't have a real relationship with Christ. If that's the case, believe him. Turn to him in faith. It's as simple as that. Give up the controls of your life and turn them over to Jesus. I hope you hear his voice and you respond in faith. What if you are living for the Lord? Well, this passage is also for you. I would just ask you this. How is God speaking to you? What what are some things that God wants for you, but you haven't responded by believing him? Are there things in your life right now you know you need to change? You know God is calling you to change, but you're not responding in obedient faith. You know you need to make some changes, but you've been putting them off. You know God is calling you to this. Listen, I would just say, hear his voice and believe him. Respond in faith. Don't be like unbelieving Israel. You know what you need to do. So respond by believing. Or maybe you realize that you're not believing some of God's promises. He says, God, God says that, as our memory verse says, that all things work together for the good of his people. Are you believing that? Jesus says he's always with you. Are you believing that? That that you belong, not to yourself, but you belong to him. He died for you. Are you believing that? He says he has good plans for you. Are you believing that? See, here's the thing. It's easy to criticize the people of Israel when they're standing on the promised land and they don't believe. But you know what? In our own lives, sometimes believing God's promises is hard. This is what it means to, to fight the good fight of faith as the people of God together. Okay, so, so wherever God's calling you, I, I can think of so many ways that God is calling you to, to serve in an area. Where is he calling you to make changes? Is he calling you to forgive somebody? Is he calling you to, to, to serve or be creative in your work or business and ways to serve him? I don't know. I would just ask that you listen to his voice. Is God calling you to serve in the church in a certain way? Is God ta- calling you to step, in, step out in faith at your school? or your workplace, whatever it is, another ministry opportunity. Listen, as, as we see over and over again, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. We need to have tender hearts, listening ears to hear his voice and respond in faith. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we praise you and love you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. I do just pray, Lord, it's a simple prayer, but I pray that we would be people who simply hear your your voice and respond by believing that we would be excited about opening up your word and hearing you speak to us and that we would believe we would respond in faith that we would draw nearer to Jesus Christ and trust in him so please help us in that Lord we need you we need your help Holy Spirit work in our hearts we can't do it for other people we can't do it for our kids or our friends our fellow church members or our neighbors our extended family You have to do it, Lord. So please work in their hearts. Help us be a people, again, who believe what you said and are excited about how you're working. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.